Would you pray with me for a moment as we come to God's word today? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word was inspired by your Holy Spirit, that every word is relevant to our lives today. And so, Holy Spirit, would you take these words, speak to our hearts, change our lives, and make us more like Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We're starting a new series today, a new short three or four week series called The Fugitive, The Fugitive, based on the life of Jonah in the Old Testament. Now, I know when I say Jonah, you're immediately thinking the guy who got swallowed by the big fish. It's a whale of a tale. It's a fishy story. We've all heard it since Sunday school, and it feels like a fairy tale or a fable. And yet, I really believe that as we study this book in the weeks ahead, that God is going to speak to each one of us. He's going to reveal more of who he is, but he's also going to do something else. He's going to shine his light on our own hearts. And it may be a little uncomfortable because he may start to expose some of the areas in our own lives that we'd rather keep hidden and out of sight. But it's going to be, I really believe, a a powerful series as we look at this book of Jonah. Let me begin with a story. A little girl was talking to her teacher about Jonah and the whale. And the teacher said it was physically impossible for a fish to swallow a human being. Because even though they were a very large mammal, their throat was very small. The little girl insisted that Jonah was swallowed by a whale just as the Bible teaches. The teacher reiterated that a whale could not swallow a human. It was absolutely impossible. The little girl said, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah. And the teacher said this, well, what if Jonah went to hell? And the little girl said, well, then, miss, you can ask him. Let's look at verse 1 and get some background on the book of Jonah. The word of the Lord, it says, came to Jonah, the son of of Amittai. This takes place around 800 years before the birth of Jesus. And we read that Jonah was a prophet. In other words, he was a man who heard from God and communicated what God said to the people. He communicated God's heart to the people. He was someone who was God's spokesman to Israel at that time. And up until now, he had had a pretty good career. We only have one other mention of Jonah outside the book of Jonah. And that is in 2 Kings 14.25. It's talking about a king, an Israeli king called Jeroboam. And it says this. He was the one, that's Jeroboam, was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Labo, Hamath to the Dead Sea. In accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gathafer. So Jonah had gone to the king, and Jonah had said that God wants you to widen our territories, extend our borders, uh, uh, strengthen our military power and might. And the king had listened to Jonah, and it had all gone incredibly well. Israel had taken new territory. So Jonah was somebody who was highly revered in that community. He was someone who people listened to. He had the ear of the king. When Jonah spoke, 
people listened. He was influential. He was respected. He, was, uh, he had status. And along with that came a certain amount of wealth and comfort. God had blessed him. He was living the good life. He had his own show on God TV. His books were bestsellers on Amazon. And he's got millions of followers on Instagram. He's an influencer on the rise. Life is good. But then God speaks to Jonah and interrupts this beautiful, settled, comfortable existence that he was just starting to enjoy. Look at verse 2 with me. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. That's what we read about prophets. It doesn't tell us how it came. It just tells us that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. That's a phrase we see right throughout the Old Testament. To Jonah, son of Amittai. And then it tells, God tells Jonah what to say or what to do. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Uh, that literally means that its wickedness has reached the highest point that it can possibly reach. And I've got two uh, statements today or two points. And the first one is this. I'll do anything but that. I'll do anything but that. God speaks to Jonah, the prophet, and says, Jonah, I've got a mission for you. I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach against it. I want you to pronounce my judgment on their sin and that I'm going to destroy them. At that time, the major superpower on earth was the Assyrian Empire. And at the heart of this Assyrian Empire, the greatest city of all was Nineveh. Nineveh was a huge city. Some of the streets were 20 miles long. It had 100 feet high walls that were so thick, three chariots could go along side by side on the wall. They were a strong city. They were a city with a reputation far and wide. Not a reputation for charity or goodness or kindness. They weren't famous for their, their nice deeds. They were infamous for their unbelievable cruelty and their uh, brutality and their wickedness. They were a nasty, nasty bunch of people. They were known to enjoy torture and murder. They made pyramids out of severed human heads. They would uh, cut off the, the two legs and one arm of people that they didn't like, leaving one arm so that they could shake their hands and mock them as they were dying. There were all sorts of things I read about the Ninevites that are too vile to even tell you now in case there's children listening to this. The, uh, the Ninevites made ISIS and Al-Qaeda look like choir boys. It was the ultimate sin city, a terrorist state, a pagan, lawless, evil, depraved, cruel, ruthless, destructive city. And it was the greatest threat to Israel's security and survival. Not the sort of place you and your family would book a two-week all-inclusive holiday in July. The prophet Nahum Describes Nineveh like this. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. It was known as a city of blood. Blood literally ran through the streets of that city. Jonah would have grown up knowing all about the Ninevites. 
how terrifying they were, how evil they were, how wicked they were. He had heard their tales of horrific torture. They'd probably killed some of his family members. He, they, they, a Ninevite couldn't be trusted. If you turned your back on a Ninevite, they would stab you in the back. Their eyes were closer together, probably. That's how you recognize them. That sort of thing was what Jonah would have heard. Their evil knew no bounds. And now God says to Jonah, go and preach against them. Tell them that judgment is coming. Up until now, Jonah had only preached to his own people in Israel. And he had been one of the few good news prophets. Most of the prophets before him had preached doom and gloom for Israel. Jonah had preached, you're going to extend your territory, you're going to extend your land. And so he was pretty popular. He, he was successful. But now God is telling him to go 500 miles to a ruthless pagan city and preach against their sin. Prophets in the past had preached against other nations at times. But God had never told them to actually go to the pagan nation to preach. So to use that word that we've heard over and over again for the last six months, this was completely unprecedented. It would be like a a Jew going in to the middle of Berlin in 1941 and calling on the Nazis to repent of their sin. It's a mission that you would take only if you were willing to to die. And so God has interrupted Jonah's nice, comfortable life and told him, I want you to do this. And he really doesn't want to do it. Look again at what verse 2 says. God says, go to the great city of Nineveh. Not, Jonah, I want to run something by you. Or Jonah, what do you think about this idea? Or Jonah, would you consider this? No, it was Jonah, I want you to go. It was a command, not a suggestion. And some of us need to understand that some of the things we take from God as suggestions are actually commands. They're non-negotiable. We don't get to decide if we want to do them or not. When God says, do this, and it's in black and white, we either do it or we don't do it. But we don't get to twist scripture or negotiate with God. But this was a command that was just too much for Jonah to obey. You know, I was thinking about this. And if you would have went to Jonah the day before this and said, Jonah, what would you do for God? Jonah would have said anything. I'll do anything for God. I'll go anywhere for God. I'll speak to anyone. I I love God. He has blessed me. He has prospered me. My word has has come to pass. I'm successful. I, I, I just, God is my God. Yahweh is my king. I will do anything for him until God asks him to do the one thing, the only thing that he really, really, really doesn't want to do. To paraphrase the words of Meatloaf, I will do anything for God, but I won't do that. You know, I have found that obeying God is easy when what God wants and what I want are exactly the same. What happens when God's plan for my life and my plans for my life collide? What happens when God says, go here, but I want to go there? When God says, do this, 
but I want to do that. That's when I discover how important God is in my life. That's when I discover if he's really, truly Lord of my heart. You see, we start off the Christian life with so much zeal and passion. God, I will do anything. I'll go anywhere. God, I'm completely surrendered to you. Lord, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. But over time, that subtly begins to change to, Lord, I'll go here and, and I'll go here, but don't, don't ask me to go here. I'll do anything, but I know that you would never ask me to do that. And we begin to develop this mindset of my safety, my comfort, my security, my plans, my agenda, even my prejudices start to take precedence over my surrender to God. You know, I think we all have one area that we close off to God. I, I just, I know I do. I'm being really honest. Do you want to know what it is? I'm not telling you. Will you tell me what yours is? I believe it's almost like we've got these two big, two circles. And one is the big circle, okay? And it's everything I would say yes to. Everything I will obey God with. And then there's this itsy, bitsy, tiny circle over here. And it's the one thing that we're saying, God, don't touch that. God, just don't go near that. Don't even mention that. And you and I will be fine. All of this is yours, God. But there's just there's this one little room in my heart. There's this one little part of my life. There's this one relationship. There's this one habit. There's this one thing. And God, just keep your paws off that. Keep your hands off that. And we will be just fine. I'll do anything but that. And I'll go anywhere but there. I remember eight years ago, Becky and I had felt a real call at the time to go to Dublin. That we were to go and lead a church in Dublin. God had been speaking to us over a period of months through just our hearts and through prophetic words and through different things. And we knew we were called to Dublin. And it got to the stage where there were two churches in Dublin that we were looking at at the exact same time. The first church was a lovely, solid, evangelical church of about 150 people in the beautiful, leafy suburbs of South Dublin, not far from the beach. They were financially stable. They were uh, theologically sound. They hadn't ever been through any major controversy or upheaval. They were fixing up the rectory, the, 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 the house for the minister. They were spending 50,000 euros on it. And they said this, but Craig, if you don't like it, we'll find you another house to live in. And, and just, they, were just, they were telling us everything we wanted to hear. They even said, Craig, to be honest with you, you will probably have a few days a week in this job to go and pursue your own projects and your own ministries. There was so much potential there. It was just this idyllic setting. And Becky and I had been married at that stage for about two years. So we were in the early years of marriage. We know we're going to be starting to think about starting a family in the next few years. This place was perfect on paper for us. And then there was another church, which at that time was called Core. It wasn't in the beautiful leafy suburbs. It was right in the inner city of Dublin in an area that was less known for its beauty and its tranquility as it was known for its drug dealing and its gangland crime. When we went to visit it 
There were drug addicts lying all around the church. There were needles all over the church grounds. It was the sort of place that you did not want to bring a family up in. The church had been through a significant upheaval over the previous eight years. The previous two ministers were out of ministry at that time. The church had declined from probably 250, 300 people to around 40 or 50 really faithful adults. When we asked about the house, they said, we don't have a house. We don't have a rectory for you. We can't afford one. We have nowhere for you to live right now. They said, actually, we don't even have a salary for you. If the bishop inquires about our finances and our accounts, he won't let us appoint a minister because we're not financially stable enough to appoint a minister. So these were our two choices at the exact same time. And can I tell you, everything within us prayed that God would lead us to the first one. We really wanted to go to the first one. On paper, it was perfect. It was safe. It was comfortable. Yes, it would be a challenge. They needed to move forward in some things, but it was just so much safer for us. We prayed and prayed and prayed that God would lead us to the first one. And I'll never forget the night that we drove from Lurgan down to Dublin to to meet the trustees of that nice church for our final interview. And they were lovely. We met in this beautiful house owned by this wealthy businessman and they could not have been nicer. They told us everything we wanted to hear. And as we walked out the door, we said to them, look, we will think about this and we'll get back to you within the next day or two. And we got into my little car and we pulled out of the gate and I looked at Becky and Becky looked at me and her eyes were filled with tears. And at the exact same moment, we both said this, we have to go to core, the inner city church. We have to go to core. And that's where we went. And God blessed us incredibly there during those five years. But can I say, those were five of the hardest years of our entire lives. Those five years felt like 15 years. But we knew we had to be obedient. God had exposed my heart in the process. You see, I'd went into ministry five years before this saying, I'll go anywhere for you, Lord. But it had got to the stage where I'll go anywhere except there because I don't like, that's a scary place. And God had begun to expose my heart. And I would love to tell you that I've made the right choice every time. I have, and I can tell you. There's many times that God has asked me to do something or asked me not to do something and I've been disobedient. There have been areas in my heart, areas in my life, rooms in my life that I have said, God, you can access anywhere, but you can't access here. And I think we all do that. We all have that one area that we just say, God, just don't touch that. Anywhere but there. Anything but that. And I think God is going to gently just touch those areas of our lives and say, if I'm really Lord of your life, I want to get in to that place you know it's really easy to follow Jesus when what he wants and what I want are the same thing but what happens when God says to forgive someone that you really don't want to forgive because of how they've hurt you what happens when God says that money you've been saving I want you to give it away or that relationship with that guy or girl that you're starting to fall for It's not good for you and I want you to break it up. Or stop doing that thing that's becoming really destructive in your life. 
but you're seeking solace and comfort and you're self-medicating in it. Or to give up that comfort that you've started to believe is your right. When we want to go this way and God says go that way, that's when we determine who is Lord of our lives. You know, somebody once said this. You can say yes, Lord, or you can say no. But you cannot say no, Lord. Because if Jesus is the Lord of your life, it has to be yes, Lord. You know, it's easy to sing words like Jesus all for Jesus and I surrender all. But do we? Do we really mean that when God asks you to do the thing that you don't want to do? That's where Jonah finds himself when God interrupts his nice, comfortable life. How does the great prophet of God respond? Look at verse 3. This is the last verse for today. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. God says, go. Jonah says, no. God says, go that way. Jonah goes the complete and total opposite way. But if you notice this, I'd never really thought about this before. Jonah never explicitly said no to God out loud. He didn't say, no, God, I'm not going. He just said no with his actions and his movement. And I, that's what we all do, isn't it? When God tells us to do something we don't want to do, very rarely do we turn to him and just go, no, God, I'm not doing it. But we just don't do it. We try to ignore him. We try to maybe justify or rationalize all the reasons why we shouldn't do it. Well, I'm not doing anyone any harm. And, and there's people out there doing much, much worse than me. And, and the sort of God I read about in the Bible, he wants me to be happy. And the Bible isn't really clear on this subject. And I know I shouldn't be going to this place, but maybe I'll be a witness while I'm there. I know I shouldn't be with this guy. His family go to church. I mean, when I say go to church, they went twice last year. Uh, And maybe I'll be able to be a good influence on him. And it's amazing how when we set our hearts on something, how we can rationalize it and justify it and even do it spiritually so that we don't have to do what God wants us to do. We might not say no out loud with our lips, but we say say a, a very loud no with our lives. So God says, go this way, and Jonah gets moving, but he, keeps go- he gets moving in the complete opposite direction. It says he headed for a place called Tarshish. Now, Nineveh was 500 miles uh, west, sorry, was 500 miles east of where Jonah was. So Nineveh was 500 miles east. It's kind of where modern day, it was actually modern day Iraq. Some of you will have heard of Mosul in the news and the conflict with Iraq. Nineveh was basically where Mosul is today. So it was about 500 miles east of where uh, Jonah was. Tarshish was over 2,000 miles west. In fact, it was as far as you could go in those days. It was literally, Tarshish was the end of the known world. In other words, he couldn't have went any further. Actually, today, it's the south coast of Spain. It's the Costa del Sol, basically. Uh, So that's where he wanted to go to. I hope he was going to quarantine for two weeks when he came back. Notice it says Jonah ran away from the Lord. 
It doesn't say he ran away from Nineveh as much as he tried to run from God. But as we'll see in the coming weeks, you can't run from God and you really can't hide from God. Why did Jonah run? Well, was it fear? Some people think Jonah was afraid. That the Ninevites had such a reputation for cruelty and uh, barbaric behavior that Jonah was absolutely terrified. That he, 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 he thought, you know what, if I go there, at best I'm going to come back in a box if I come back at all. So some people think it was that he was afraid. Other people think it was to do with failure. He had been a successful prophet until now. Everybody had listened to him. His words had come to pass. And he thought, if I go here... And, 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 and I proclaim the word of the Lord, what if I fail? What, what, if, what, if, what if they don't listen to me? What if they completely ignore me? And both of these are possibilities. Maybe he was afraid, and maybe he did think he would fail. But when we get to the end of the book, and I, I don't want to spoil it for you, I hate those trailers that tell you the entire movie in two and a half minutes, and you're thinking, I don't need to watch it anymore. But we realize that there was something much bigger influencing Jonah's heart than fear or failure. It was this. He had an attitude of, I will love anyone except them. So my first point was, I will do anything except that. The second point is this. I will love anyone except them. Jonah was a Hebrew, and the Hebrews were the chosen people of God. They were God's own select People who were called by God and chosen by God and loved by God and the recipients of his favor, his grace and his mercy. And quite frankly, anyone outside of Israel were seen as God's enemies. They were not loved by God. They were Gentiles, they were pagans and they were outside of God's blessing and grace. And as far as many Israelites were concerned, they could literally go to hell. Because they were evil and they were wicked and they were idolaters and they were immoral in their behavior and they deserved everything that was coming for them. And that was especially true of the wicked, evil Ninevites. They were definitely outside God's grace. And God shows up to Jonah and says, I want you to go and preach them. Preach judgment against them. And to our ears, that sounds like a good message. A message of judgment, a message of wrath. You're going to get the punishment that's coming to you. But Jonah knew better. Jonah knew that God was offering Nineveh a second chance. God was wanting to give them a chance to repent and to change their ways. To turn around and avoid judgment. How do we know that? Because when we get to chapter 3 verse 4, we see that's exactly uh, what... we see exactly what God had told Jonah to preach to Nineveh. Look at what he's told to preach. This is his message. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I want you to see this. If God had only wanted to pour out judgment and wrath and uh, lightning bolts on Nineveh, he would just have done it. He wouldn't have given them 40 days. He wouldn't have given them time to repent. He would just have unleashed all of the fury of heaven upon them like he had done with Sodom and Gomorrah. But God wants to give them a second chance. And he wants to reach out to them through Jonah and extend his grace to this rebellious, evil, wicked, pagan, godless, brutal nation. And Jonah wants nothing to do 
with such a plan. It is a complete affront to everything he is and everything he believes. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah sulks with God and he says this, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. God is, is, is just too gracious for Jonah. You know, Jonah could handle God's wrath and judgment. He just can't handle his grace and mercy, especially the people who he doesn't think deserve it. It wasn't failure that scared Jonah. It was actually success that terrified him. The thought that he might go and proclaim judgment and the people might repent and God might relent and spare them from wrath and punishment. That was what terrified Jonah most. They deserved every bit of God's anger and wrath. He wanted them wiped off the face of the earth because they had it coming to them. He had a small, limited, narrow view of God's grace. There were people who were inside God's favor and God's goodness and God's love. And then there were most people who were outside of God's love and goodness. There were people who God could save and there were people who were completely off limits. And his attitude was, I hate them and so God must hate them too. Don't we do that sometimes? We assume that our enemies are God's enemies. That if we don't like people, God's obviously on our side because we're his people, so he must be on our side. And I want to ask you today, as we come to finish, how wide is your view of God's grace? Most of us, if we're really honest, we have our own little mental hit list of people who if God wiped them off the face of the earth, we wouldn't lose a wink of sleep. It could be a whole group of people. It could be a nation. It could even be just an individual. But let's just be really honest. We all have that little mental hit list that if God were to get rid of them, destroy them tomorrow, we would be completely fine. In fact, we think the world would probably be a better place because of it. Yes, we know we're all sinners, but there's different categories and groups of sinners. I mean, there's sinners like them and there's sinners like me, but I'm nowhere near the sort of sinner they are. You know, I'm nowhere near as bad as they are. I mean, God can save somebody like me, but them, they're completely lost and without hope. I deserve grace, but they don't. Who is it for you? Let's be specific here. Let's Let's prod a little bit. You know the way the doctor does when he's trying to find out what's wrong with you? He pushes and says, tell me where it hurts. Let's prod a little bit here. Let's push a little bit here. What about those people who are pro-abortion and campaign for a woman's rights to terminate her pregnancy? Are they outside the grace of God? What about those who live a flamboyantly gay lifestyle? Does God really love them? Does God love transsexuals? What about pedophiles and sex offenders? If I'm being really honest, that's the group I have always had the biggest problem with. People who abuse women and children. Do you know what happened? As I've 
going to Dublin wasn't going to be bad enough after the story I've just told you. When I got there, they said, oh, there's one bit of the job we forgot to tell you, Craig. Uh, part of the job in this church is that you're the Church of Ireland chaplain of uh, a certain prison that they named, and it's the largest sex offenders prison in Dublin. And I said, no way. And they said, Craig, it's part of your job. And I said, no way, I'm not going in there. And again, God had to deal with my heart. And I went in there. And I got to know some of the guys, and it was not a pleasant place. There were about 200 of the high-profile sex offenders in that place. But over five years, I got to know them. I got to hear their stories. And their stories were painful because of what they did. And most of them, I have to say, in prisons, they always joke that, that, that people, are, everybody's innocent in prison. These guys, I don't think one of them ever claimed to be innocent. They all admitted their guilt to me. But they also told me about their own childhoods and how every one of them had been horribly abused and the abused became the abuser. It doesn't excuse anything. But over five years as I got to know these people, got to share the love of God. We did an Alpha course and over 10% of that prison did Alpha. And many of them who did Alpha genuinely had their lives transformed by Jesus Christ. But can I say to you, I struggled to believe that even they could be saved. I really did. I struggled to believe that their salvation could be real because as far as I was concerned, sex offenders and pedophiles were outside of the grace of God. Who is it for you? God had to stretch the boundaries of his grace that I had placed him in. As Christians, how often we limit and restrict God's grace. We have a everybody, that's another circle, it was everywhere but there, and we have an everybody but them. Everybody, Lord, I can love everybody. I can believe you love everybody. I can believe that there's grace for everybody. But this, this little circle here, God, don't go there. They're never going to get your grace as far as I'm concerned. Yet the most famous verse in the Bible says this, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God so loved loved the world no exceptions no exclusions this includes people who aren't christians even people who ridicule reject or even persecute christians this includes a woman who has had three abortions because she didn't want to disrupt her career by having kids god loves her this includes gay people lesbians transgenders god loves them are you starting to feel that, that ouch right now? I'm feeling it. It includes sex offenders. It includes pornographers. God loves them. It includes the terrorist who murdered someone in your family during the troubles. God loves them. It includes that person who hurt you so badly in the past. And they've never even apologized. In fact, they don't care that they hurt you. God loves them. Am I saying that their sin is no big deal? That God is never going to judge them for what they've done? That is not what I'm saying. I want to make that very clear. That is not what I'm saying. The Bible is explicit that there is a day of judgment coming. That one day all of us will stand before a righteous, just and holy God. And we will have to give an account for our lives. And those who have rejected Christ will be eternally separated from God and sent to hell. Okay? 
that is clear. I believe in eternal judgment. I believe as hell is real. It's hot and it lasts forever. Okay? But what I am saying is this. We're not at the day of judgment yet. We're in the period of grace. The period of grace is this. Between Christ's first coming and his second coming. When there is an opportunity to repent. When there is an opportunity to receive God's salvation. For every single person, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, his grace knows no bounds or boundaries. It is indiscriminate. It is absolutely scandalous, God's grace. How dare he offer it to them? And yet, how dare he offer it to me? Second Peter 3 says this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise That was the promise to return and judge. As some understand slowness. Instead he is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish. But everyone to come to repentance. God's desire. God's heart. God's passion. Is that not one person would perish. And that includes the person you hate. The people that we look at and we say. God judge them. God get them. God destroy them. God looks at them and says, I just want to give them more time. Just maybe another month. Just maybe another year and they'll turn to me. Maybe they'll meet somebody and this person will share the gospel with them. Maybe their heart will be softened. I just want to give them one chance. I just want to show them my grace. I just want them to experience my love. I just want, I just want to give them one more chance. I, know, I want to come and make things right, but I just, I just want to give them one more chance. You might write them off, but I want to say this. God never writes anybody off. And if you're watching this today, I want to tell you this. God has not written you off, no matter who you are, where you've been, or what you've done. God loves you, and he wants you to be in relationship with him. His grace is wider than I can ever imagine, and he is more inclusive than I could ever tolerate. And when we get to heaven, I believe it's going to be full of people that we're going to go, I didn't think they'd be there. And there's going to be some people who are going to look at you and go, I didn't think they'd be there. Don't narrow God's grace to some little, small, exclusive group of people who are just like you. Maybe, just maybe God is less prejudiced than you are. Maybe God is more loving than you are. And maybe God is bigger than the box the boundaries that you have placed them in. Let me finish with a story. A story about World War I. There was a Protestant chaplain with the American troops in Italy and he became a friend of the local Roman Catholic priest. In time, the chaplain who moved on with his unit was killed. The priest heard of his death and asked the military authorities if the chaplain could be buried in the cemetery behind the Catholic church. Permission was granted by the military authorities, but then the priest ran into a problem with his own Catholic church authorities. They were sympathetic, but they said they simply could not approve of the burial of a non-Catholic in a Catholic cemetery. So the priest buried his his friend just outside the cemetery fence. Years later, a war veteran who knew what had happened returned to Italy and visited the old priest. The first thing he did was he asked to see the chaplain's grave. To his surprise, he found that the grave was inside the fence of the Catholic Church. 
Ah, he said, I see you got permission to move the body of the chaplain. No, said the priest. They told me where I couldn't bury the body, but nobody ever told me I couldn't move the fence. Maybe today God wants to move the fence in our lives. And some people who we have pushed to the outside, he wants us to bring them to the inside. Some people we have written off, God has them inscribed on the palms of his hands. Some people who we would say, anyone except them, God is saying, they're exactly the sort of people I want you to go and show my love to. Because his love is boundless. His grace is powerful. His blood is greater than any sin. I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a great saviour, not just for me, but for the worst and the baddest and the lowest and the most depraved. And as his church, his people, we're called to extend his grace. Amen.